This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin this Friday with breaking news in our health lead. The nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, making clear this afternoon that some states in the U.S. should pause and even reverse course in their reopening plans. Fauci saying that all options must be on the table to fight this pandemic. The comments from Fauci come as COVID-19 is spreading at alarming rates across significant parts of the United States, including the South and the West. The death toll topping 1,000 for each of the last three days. It's a dangerous trend that we have not seen since May. Hospitalizations are also climbing, reaching near record levels over the last 24 hours after declining dramatically last month, as you see in the graph on the screen. Dr. Deborah Burks of the White House Coronavirus Task Force saying today that the surge is, quote, very serious and very real, unquote, comparing major outbreaks in at least three three states Texas, Florida, and California, to what happened in New York. Though Burks pointed to some encouraging signs, infections, she said, may be plateauing in those hot spots, as well as in Arizona. This all comes as the CDC is trying to defend newly released guidance pushing for kids to go back to school in person. Critics contend that the country's top public health agency may be being politicized to please President Trump instead of following the science. Even health officials inside the Trump administration acknowledge that it is still an open question how much young people spread the disease, as CNN's Nick Watt explains for us now. The president, backed by new CDC guidelines, pushing hard for schools to reopen, brick and mortar. Being at the school, being on the campus is very, very important. But is it safe? The CDC says scientific studies suggest that COVID-19 transmission among children in schools may be low. Emphasis on suggest and may. I think we still need to learn a lot about children, you know, elementary school children, getting infected and whether they either spread or not efficiently to adults. In hotspots, schools should figure out a plan with local health officials, says the CDC. Right now, the virus is controlling us in in many parts of the world. Much of the Americas right now are are really uh, in the thick of it. Um, But we do see signs of hope. Across the country, in more than half of states, average new case counts are right now steady or falling. That's good. Case counts generally falling in Arizona after a very difficult month. And hard-hit Florida... Although I do think South Florida, you know, is definitely stabilized. And I think Miami is showing some signs of improvement as well. He's right. New case rates in Florida are leveling off, but leveling off very high. And average daily deaths in the state are at an all-time high. And in Miami-Dade County, ICUs are now operating at 132% capacity. We're drowning. We're absolutely drowning here. It's just an overwhelming number of cases, 527 individuals in the ICUs. Star County, Texas, just ordered everyone to shelter at home. According to the county, our doctors are going to have to decide who receives treatment and who is sent home to die by their loved ones. One major model projects around another 75,000 Americans might die before November. So now we should hit the reset button, say 150 prominent medical experts and others who've signed an open letter to our leaders. Shut it down now and start over. I don't personally think that's necessary. I I think that if we just do the common sense things, we can get this under control as other countries have gotten it under control. 
So um, the absolute opposite of this tight-packed, unmasked religious service in Northern California. And California has just reported another record daily death toll, Jake. Two more people dying than yesterday. And also today, more big retailers and food stores making people wear masks. Chipotle, as of today, you've got to wear a mask when you walk in. McDonald's is going to do the same as of next weekend. And clearly, they are anticipating a little bit of friction. They say if somebody arrives without a mask, an employee will, in a very friendly fashion, offer them one. If they refuse the mask, they'll be asked to stand away from other people to keep staff and other customers safe. Jake? All right, Nick, thank you so much. Joining us now, Michael Osterholm. He's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Um, thank you so much, Michael, for coming back. What guidance would you offer when it comes to whether or not kids should go back to school based on today's data? Well, you know, we've done a lot of work on this over the past several weeks. In fact, I've just recorded two different podcasts that are on our center's website. And after interviewing many superintendents, teachers, parents, looking at all the different guidance, over 17 guidance documents, looking at the data, I think it comes down to one simple fact. Every school district should have to be able to choose for their own. What do they do? It's so different from city to city, where you have more cases and some than others, uh, what the composition of the student population happens to be in terms of their access to Internet, online learning, etc. We all want to get kids back to school, but this should be a local choice issue. I'm convinced of that. The new CDC guidelines heavily push for kids to return to school in-person learning, citing the potential detriment to their development. Uh, not long ago, the CDC warned that schools could fuel the spread of coronavirus. And we've, we've seen that chart out of Israel where when they, once they opened the schools, uh, the infection rates uh, started really going up significantly. Are you worried at all about whether or not the information coming from the CDC can be trusted given how much President Trump's administration has politicized so many agencies? Well, I think the CDC uh, recommendations today have to be viewed in the light of the fact that they had previous recommendations that were in draft form that looked very, very different than the ones that do today. Uh, I, I just have to come back to the fact that, first of all, we don't have good data in this country about uh, kids in schools, particularly uh, whether it be K through fifth or sixth grade, which may be one risk level, or those all the way to senior in high school. And the reason is because we closed schools down when the uh, uh, pandemic really first started hitting here. The data we have are actually from countries outside the United States. And if you look at those, most of the data that we've generated that says that the risk is very low actually occurred in countries that got the pandemic under control relatively quickly and then reopened in a very different setting than we see in the United States. On the other hand, where we have had large community uh, case numbers, uh, schools had a much more difficult time reopening. So we have to understand that we just can't say that kids won't get infected and, and transmit. We all want kids to go to school, all of us, for all the other health reasons. But also we have to understand how do you do that uh, if, in fact, you have teachers, a quarter of them right now, have high risk factors for serious disease if they get infected. 
Uh, we have to figure out what plans are available to local school districts so they can help control that. We're all waiting for federal resources to get to the schools. It's still languishing uh, in the U.S. Senate right now. I've talked to a number of superintendents in the last uh, two weeks who said, we have plans that we can help put in place that will reduce the risk of transmission, but we can't do them now. We don't have the resources. So I think what we have to understand is this is probably going to be our COVID year for school except the fact that it's not going to be a normal year. It may be a redo for us next year. Uh, and, and do whatever you can to help protect kids, protect the teachers, protect your communities. And if you can go to school, great. But if you can't, that's not a wrong answer. You say that a lot of this depends uh, on whether or not a school should open or a school district should open on the infection rate in the area. Uh, what, what kind of scenario would you like to see before a school says, okay, we're going to have in-person classes? I think you've got to, first of all, see well less than 5% of your positive tests uh, or of your testing is positive. Uh, you'd like to see, in fact, fewer than five cases per 100,000 population. You want to have a decreasing number of cases for at least the last 14 days. And you want to have a quarter or more of your hospital beds available. So if you have a surge, you can deal with it. If you have all those conditions in place, then your schools have a better chance of not having the virus come in from the community itself and causing uh, problems from day one. And so, again, we have to leave this up to the various communities. Each one is different. I have yet to meet a superintendent or a school teacher that don't want to get back in class. They all do. They want the kids back. But they have real challenges right now. Uh, you know, in terms of just what they can do based on the under-resourced efforts uh, to try to um, get more space, for example, so you can space students out, to get more paraprofessionals to come in and help out, uh, so that if you have to split classrooms up into two, you actually have that. They don't have personal protective equipment right now. Many of the schools have virtually nothing to help protect their teachers. Uh, This is not a time to force this. This is a time, maybe they can open in October, maybe in November, but again, it's a do-over. Let this be your COVID year, doing everything we can to protect kids, doing everything we can to keep parents working and providing childcare. But at the same time, I, I just have to say, Jake, if anybody has the right answer here, it's the wrong answer. The only answers we have is you've got to give it to local choice and you've got to get resources to these local school districts or we're asking them to do the impossible. Dr. Burke said that Florida, Texas, and California are essentially three New Yorks, where the death toll still remains the highest in the country, more than 32,000. New York did ultimately dramatically bend the state's curves, and cases and hospitalizations and deaths in New York are dramatically down. Um, But do you expect a second wave could hit New York? Uh, New York is at risk. Uh, You know, I have to disclose that... uh, uh, months ago, uh, Governor Cuomo asked me as, and someone else to serve as the kind of the reviewer of the data every day in terms of whether or not they could reopen further or they had to basically close things down. Uh, what New York has done has been remarkable. They have not just only driven the numbers down, but they have monitored it so closely that they, more than any other place in the United States, has a good feel of what's happening and when to tighten things up, when to loosen them up. Uh, they, too, realize that they're sitting potentially on what could be increasing cases. But I'd much rather deal with a couple hundred or 400 cases in New York City right now than having to deal with 75,000 cases across the country every day. 
And so they have shown us that you can reduce the uh, occurrence of this virus in your communities if you lock it down, get it down to a low level, and then control it from there. What we did is we kind of got there. We kind of got halfway there, and people said, ah, we're just close enough. Let's open up again. And we saw what happened with that. So I happen to be one of those that believe we have to at least regionally, if not in large parts of the country, lock back down, get it down. And then we can control it after that in a much better way. And all we need to do is look at countries around the world that have done it. They should give us hope that we could do what they've done. And we can, I believe. But we're not going to do it if we keep saying, well, we'll kind of, kind of shut down. All right, Michael Osterholm, thank you so much. As always, appreciate it. President Trump now appears to be accepting the realities of the coronavirus pandemic, but it does seem he's forgotten some things in the process. We'll tell you what. Then new revelations about why President Trump barred New Yorkers from signing up for a popular State Department program. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, this week, President Trump is attempting to convince the nation that he is on top of this pandemic. He's doing this not by initiating a new strategy for tackling the virus, given that the current one is clearly failing. He's doing it by finally embracing masks, at least for now, and holding briefings. And sources say much of that is driven by his sinking poll numbers and his fears that he will not win re-election in just over 100 days. The president's latest move on this front, canceling parts of the Republican National Convention set for Florida and blaming it on the virus and the need to keep people safe, though, as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, it appears at least some of the concern is over how many people will actually show up. President Trump made a series of head-snapping reversals on coronavirus this week as the virus is surging and his poll numbers are sinking. So I told my team it's time to cancel the Jacksonville, Florida component of the GOP convention. Canceling his convention in Jacksonville, Florida, was the latest U-turn that came eight weeks after the president moved it from North Carolina because he thought the health precautions required there were too strict. The timing for this event is not right. It's just not right with what's happened recently, the flare-up in Florida. Without mentioning the thousands of supporters he recently addressed in Oklahoma and Arizona without masks, Trump now says he feels obligated not to host big crowds. I thought I had an obligation not to have large numbers, massive numbers of people crowded into a room. Sources say there are staggering numbers behind the president's decision, but it's not the case count in the U.S. A Quinnipiac poll released this week found that 62 percent of Florida voters felt it was unsafe to hold a convention in the state next month. The same poll had Joe Biden leading Trump in Florida by 13 points. The president canceled the convention but forged ahead with his push for schools to reopen this fall. Though he claimed Wednesday that kids don't transmit COVID-19, quote, very easily, task force official Dr. Deborah Burks said it's still being evaluated. What I can't tell you for sure is whether children under 10 in the United States don't spread the virus is the same as children over 10. The president did not brief reporters on Friday, but he did tweet that a top Republican told him Congress would not force the Pentagon to change the Confederate names of some U.S. military bases. But Senator Jim Inhofe voted for a bill that passed the Senate this week and includes a provision to rename those bases and is similar to one that passed in the House with overwhelming bipartisan support. Despite including a pay raise for U.S. troops, Trump has threatened to veto the final bill if it ultimately renames those bases. 
The bases are not known for the generals they're named after. The bases are known for the heroes within it. CNN reported today that President Trump erupted last week after his defense secretary, Mark Esper, issued a military-wide directive effectively banning the Confederate flag from military installations. It's freedom of speech. Now, Jake, I should note that a White House official did dispute our story on Esper, saying the president was not angry when it was brought up, though other sources said that he certainly was. And we should say today the president didn't brief, but the press secretary, Kaylee McEnany, did. And, Jake, she was asked about the president's call with the Russian president yesterday, a call of one of several that he's had over the last few months with Vladimir Putin. And she was asked if the president brought up that intelligence, remember, recently that was reported on about those purported Russian bounties to the Taliban for U.S. soldiers. She said she would not comment on whether or not that was brought up during that call. And, Jake, she also wouldn't say if the president raised election interference with Putin, which is notable given the fact that today the nation's top counterintelligence official listed Russia among countries that are trying to interfere with American democracy. Kaylin Collins at the White House, thank you for that excellent reporting. Appreciate it. What to do if you're in one of the places where coronavirus is surging? I'm going to talk to a Republican governor who just instituted a mask mandate for his state. That's next. In the national lead now, Ohio has just recorded its highest level of hospitalizations since this pandemic began. And Dr. Deborah Burks, the head of the coronavirus task force at the White House, says that she is concerned about the explosion of new cases in the state's two largest cities, Columbus and Cleveland. Joining us now to discuss is Republican Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio. Governor DeWine, thanks for joining us. So you have a new statewide mask mandate now in place. It, It requires masks at indoor locations and outside if there's no social distancing, as well as on public transportation. As you well know, cases have been rising in Ohio for the last month. Why implement this now and not earlier? Well, we started about four weeks ago a process where we labeled counties uh, by different levels. And if you were a red level, that which was three, Uh, people had to wear a mask. So we've been kind of easing people into this. But the the good news is that uh, we've seen the mask wearing go up. Uh, When we look at some of these counties where they've been wearing masks more, uh, we think we're seeing a a slowdown, at least a slowdown in the increase. So, you know, our our numbers are have gone up uh, today or yesterday's um, you know, it was the second highest that we've had uh, for some time. So we don't like that at all. But we've been hovering somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500 uh, every day now for two or two weeks, probably. 12 or 1,500 new cases. Is that what you're talking about? New cases. Yeah, new cases. Right. That, that's what we're looking yeah. at. You know, the positivity so- rate is about 6.2. Uh, and it's been fairly steady now for the last week or so. So I recall you trying to implement a mask order for the state at the end of April, um, but you rescinded it the next day. You said this, uh, if you recall. It became clear to me that that was just a bridge too far, that people were, were not going to accept the government telling them what to do. So in retrospect, was it a mistake to listen to the people who were telling you they would never abide by it? And who were these people? Was it the protesters? I mean, they were wrong. Whoever was telling you that they opposed this mask mandate, they were they were obviously wrong. Well, 
Well, look, part of part of governing is to be able to bring people along. And, you know, when we did our reopening, we have and, and still have today some of the most stringent protocols for companies. So everybody, every employee in every company uh, for a long time now has been under our mask order and it's worked exceedingly well. Uh, when I made the decision not to require people who are going into retail to wear a mask, uh, it was made because it was clear at that point in time, people would simply not accept it, uh, did not think people would really be doing it. Um, so it's not the protesters. We're not concerned about that. But there's an obligation that a governor has to try to bring people along. And so we've been doing that, as I said, three weeks ago, three and a half weeks ago, we went to a, a system of color. If you're red, you have to wear a mask. And so for some time, 60 percent of the people have had to wear a mask. We've seen good compliance in increasing compliance. Now what we're asking is our, our counties that don't have as high, uh, our yellow counties and our orange counties, we're telling the folks there, look, if you wear a mask, you won't, you know, this is a good way to not to get to red and not to get to purple. And so uh, it's, it's certainly, uh, I think we're, we're moving now in the, in the right direction. The other thing that we're finding, um, and this is maybe a little surprise, but it's not just the bars where people are getting uh, uh, infected. It's not just other big groups like churches. We, we're certainly finding that. But the thing that really uh, is driving a lot of this is just people getting together with friends, getting together in their right. backyard, getting together with their you know, family members and, and friends. And I think what it is is people don't when they're with friends, they're with someone they know, they don't think they need to take any precautions. And our message this week has been very clear. You need to take precautions if you're in that type of situation, because you never know with this virus who has it and who does not. I want to ask you about uh, the case. Uh, at least one person has died in Ohio and 19 others caught the coronavirus after attending the Pickaway County Fair uh, at the end of June in your state. Uh, the county says that food vendors set out shared condiment bottles, which allowed the virus to spread, and also that people who worked at this fair and vendors did not wear masks, did not follow mask guidelines. You're still allowing fairs to operate. Um, are you worried at all that you're risking the health and safety of Ohioans by doing that? Or are you taking more precautions than they showed at this state fair? Well, we, we have a lot of county fairs. We have 88 counties and we have some independent fairs. Uh, the whole idea of these fairs, frankly, is to let kids uh, bring in their livestock, uh, what we call the junior fair. Uh, and so we provided money to these fairs to allow them to have the uh, safety that they needed. Clearly, Pickaway County uh, did not do what they should have done. I got every fair manager uh, and the fair members, the boards on the phone a couple of days ago and said, look, uh, if you can't run the fair, uh, you know, you're going to have to shut your fair down. Uh, you need to listen to your local health department. If the health department tells you you got too many people on the ground, you need to shut the gate down. So uh, we we had a conversation about that. It's clear that Pickaway County did not control people. They did not control their crowd. They did not do what they were supposed to do. Uh, look, we're, we're trying to provide opportunities for kids. Uh, we can't shut the whole state down again. This is not uh, what people want, nor is it particularly healthy? We've lost a lot because of the fact that the state, uh, you know, was shut down. So you can't do that forever. Uh, but what 
my message is to the people of mm. Ohio is, look, we've got, we've got good guidelines. We've got good orders. We need to follow them, whether it's at the county fair or whether it's in your backyard. Um, if people are willing to do that, you know, we're going we're going to make a huge, huge difference in regard to this this virus. Let's yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope they abide by this. Republican Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio, thank you so much, uh, and we're all wishing well for the people of your state. Coming up, it's home to the first confirmed case of coronavirus in the United States. Then they seem to do everything right, but why is Washington State? now seeing a resurgence of the virus. Stay with us. In our national lead, brand new stricter rules announced in Washington state because of a surge in coronavirus cases there. Washington state, you may recall, was the first epicenter known when it came to the U.S. outbreak. But after getting the situation relatively under control, it's seen a sharp uptick in recent weeks. CNN's Dan Simon looks at what went wrong with Washington's reopening strategy. They came to pick her up and they put her in an ambulance. 17-year-old Robert Cordova called 911 when his mom's coronavirus symptoms became severe. We didn't know if that was the last time we were going to see her. The single mother was hospitalized in Yakima, Washington for nearly a month on a ventilator. When she was in the coma, we, we didn't know what to do. Now home, Bertha Cordova believes she contracted COVID-19 while working at a fruit packaging plant. All three of her children and her mother were diagnosed with more mild cases. They are among the nearly 50,000 Washingtonians to get COVID-19 since the state's first outbreak in January. The first case of a deadly coronavirus has reached the U.S. It's in Washington state. Washington was the country's original epicenter. Governor Jay Inslee's stay-at-home order seemed to bring things under control. And like other current hotspots, it began to reopen in May. Three months to the day after we've declared a state of emergency, we're successfully moving forward. But despite its head start, crowded working conditions, opposition to masks, and general quarantine fatigue have helped set the state back, with confirmed cases rising since early June. The virus is going to do whatever it's going to do, and all it needs is a little bit of help. Um, to kind of go crazy. Brandy Wiltermuth is a nurse practitioner using this makeshift medical tent to serve a food distribution center in Yakima County. Agricultural workers here, like Bertha, are considered essential. No más un plástico aquí. They were only separated, like she said, about this distance with a plastic screen with them and masks and gloves. Rural Yakima County now has the second highest number of cases in Washington, yet state-mandated mask wearing has been slow to catch on. It would be different if everybody did everything that they possibly could, but we haven't seen that. Our suppression of this virus is not at the level it needs to be. Governor Inslee is now reinstating restrictions on social gatherings, hitting already struggling businesses hard. You can only go through this so many times before people just throw up their hands and are like, what's the use? Special events promoter Grant Harrington says he's lost up to $400,000 in revenue this year. There's a lack of morale. There's a lack of like motivation. And I think that we've got to find ways to be proactive in safely opening business so we can have time to prepare so we can do it safely. 
Now, the mother you saw there in the piece, Bertha, she has some pretty simple advice for anyone willing to listen, and that is to wear a mask. Now, Jake, as we saw, Washington is one of these states that thought it had things under control. Now, health officials there worry that it could become the next California or Florida. That's why Governor Inslee issued those new social restrictions and why he's also updated the mask policy. Bottom line, if you leave your home, you have to wear a mask. The question now is one of compliance. Jake. All right, Dan Simon, thank you so much. Tune in this Sunday morning to CNN State of the Union. We have a packed show for you. My guests include Admiral Brett Giroir, uh, who is the Assistant Secretary of Health at HHS, and the testings are. We'll also have Larry Kudlow, the head of the U.S. Economic Council. The head of the Congressional Black Caucus, Congresswoman Karen Bass, will be with us. Maryland's Republican Governor Larry Hogan and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday. Coming up any moment, moving trucks will pull away from the Chinese consulate in Houston, Texas, after the U.S., the Trump administration, ordered it shut down. China is now taking retaliatory action. What are they doing? That's next. The president and his administration lie to the public, not infrequently. What they do do less often is publicly admit that they lie even. One exception, we just learned from a court filing that the Trump administration is finally admitting that its officials made false statements when they banned New Yorkers from enrolling in federal programs, including one that allowed passengers to speed through airport security lines. In February, as you might remember, the Department of Homeland Security claimed that their ban on New Yorkers was because New York allows undocumented immigrants to apply for driver's licenses without sharing their personal data with the federal government. Except the thing is, other states have similar laws, but the Trump administration only singled out New York. With lawsuits now pending, the Department of Homeland Security is now admitting that prior statements they made were, quote, inaccurate or misleading and effective immediately. The department is going to lift this ban. In just a few minutes, we understand China's U.S. consulate in Houston will officially close after the Trump administration ordered it to do so, with officials describing this as a hotbed of spy activity. We've seen moving trucks parked outside. Now, in retaliation, China today announced that the U.S. must close its consulate in Chengdu after a week of escalating tensions. CNN's Kylie Atwood joins me now to discuss this. Uh, and, and Kylie, clearly things are getting even tenser between the U.S. and China. What sparked this move? Yeah, let's just flick through what has happened just this week, Jake. So on Tuesday, G- DOJ prosecutors charged alleged Chinese hackers who they said were backed by the Chinese government of trying to steal vaccine research here in the United States. On that same day, the State Department told China that it had to vacate its consulate in Houston, essentially kicking it out for what it said was alleged involvement uh, in Chinese uh, efforts here to steal trade secrets and the like. And then fast forward to Thursday, we had Secretary Pompeo sort of describing why they had done that, why they kicked the Chinese out of the Houston consulate, saying that it was a hub for spying and intellectual property theft. And then just this morning, we are learning that a Chinese scientist who prosecutors alleged had committed visa fraud and had also lied to the FBI about her uh, relations, connections to factions of the Chinese military, she is now in U.S. custody. So there's a lot that has happened this week. It's important to note, however, that this is part of the Trump administration's strategy, its stated policy uh, towards China being really tough on China everywhere it seeds it needs to. 
And, and Kylie, what's been the reaction at the State Department and the Trump administration to China closing the U.S. consulate in Chengdu? Well, the reaction to closing the consulate uh, hasn't been extensive right now. They knew that the Chinese were going to do something. Obviously, when they forced them to close their consulate here, the Chinese weren't going to stand back and do nothing. We have seen this happen between the U.S. and China time and time again. But the U.S. officials are doubling down on the need to have done this. They are saying that they really had to go after China for having its diplomats involved in espionage efforts here in the United States. Jake? Hmm. All right, Kylie Atwood at the State Department. Thank you so much. Debates over masks, seeing family, sending kids back to school. A look at how to negotiate just some of the emotionally charged conversations that might be happening in your household and in households across America. That's next. In our Health Lead today, mask or no mask, open or virtual, all the divisiveness and politics related to the pandemic has left many Americans confused and stressed about what to do for our emotions, our emotional well-being. Let's bring in the lead's favorite clinical psychologist, Dr. Andrea Bonnier. She's a professor of psychology at Georgetown and author of the book, Detox, Your Thoughts. Uh, Dr. Bonnier, always great to have you. You say you've noticed the stress related to the pandemic is actually getting even worse compared to when it started, when people were pretty freaking out, pretty much. Um, what have you yeah, noticed and why I do you think see it is? That. Yeah, I think right now people are feeling lost. Like maybe they already sacrificed so much. And the idea that it might have been for nothing. And people are feeling confused because there's so much divisiveness. We've lost a little bit of the sense that we're all in this together, trying for a common purpose that we know will work. And so I think that hopelessness is what I'm seeing more of. And quite frankly, I'm seeing a lot more rage, too, especially among parents who say, we did our part. And now things aren't happening the way that we had hoped. Our kids are still in jeopardy. What happened? Yeah, it's a, a lot. It's understandable, Rage, frankly. Um, there's this big debate, as you know, about reopening schools, and that is super stressful. Um, the, I, I mean, remote learning, learning sucks. It's awful. It's especially bad for younger kids. Um, what do you tell parents when they say, I don't know what to tell my, my kids? They hated remote learning so much, and we might have to do it again. Yeah. Yeah, it's really frustrating. And so empathizing with the kids is the first step, but then really making a plan, looking critically at what worked and what didn't, learning from what went on in the spring and trying to make things better, having some specific strategy this time, because we know this is coming and we know we might be in this for the long haul is so important because it gives kids a sense of controllability and predictability instead of, uh oh, next Monday, you're going to be home. Now we can say, here's how we're going to ease into it. Here's how we're going to arrange a part of our home to make it a little bit easier for you to focus. Here's how, here's what equipment we're going to get from the school and how we're going to set it up. Here's how you're going to have some specialized time, maybe with some friends that we plan every week to check in about homework and to just talk to each other. So it's about having a plan and trying to look at what made it miserable in the spring and how we can overcome that in the fall and try to tweak it just in little ways. I totally hear the arguments of people who say that it's important to open schools. I mean, I, I get the arguments on the other side, too, that it depends on the situation on the ground uh, when it comes to the pandemic. But talk, if you would, a little bit about um, what the emotional effect of uh, homeschooling is, because it, I don't make light of it at all. I mean, I, people say that suicidal ideation increases. People say that drug abuse and um, 
and, and substance abuse increases for kids and for adults. Yeah. And what you're speaking to, Jake, I think is so important. And that's the social isolation piece. School is not just a place to learn academics. School is a place where we have peer groups, where children are able to kind of find people who respect them and value them and who make them laugh and who they feel part of a community. That said, you know, there's a big difference between distance learning versus distance learning in a crisis that's kind of slapped together. So in my mind, a lot of the deficits of what we're seeing can be overcome if school systems really have a plan, if they spend their energy saying, here's how we're going to do it better than what happened in the spring. And here's how we're going to overcome some of the crisis level panic that that really was off-putting in the spring. But I think what we really need to think about is that distance learning can work. We've just got to have a better plan. There needs to be one-on-one check-ins more. There needs to be some breaks from screens. There needs to be creative ways of having kids do assignments that involve their surroundings at home that aren't just staring at the screen all day. And when we can plan for that, we are going to see better outcomes. The CDC estimates that coronavirus is going to be a top 10 leading cause of death in the United States this year. Suicide also made the list uh, from data last available in 2018. And you've said that more attention is needed on preventing suicide, especially as this pandemic continues. Explain, Explain how. Yeah, I'm really concerned because we saw rising suicide rates before this pandemic started. We also know that having a firearm in the home is a risk factor statistically for suicide. So an additional concern is that there's been an increase in purchases of firearms in the beginning of the pandemic. And we combine that with economic troubles and the social isolation and perhaps people being in abusive environments at home that they can't escape. It's very concerning. Um, we don't have you know long-term numbers yet to think about how exactly exactly this pandemic has affected suicide rates, but it is something. We see psychiatric care being slashed. We see community mental health programs, the funding disappearing, which is an additional concern. I think we all need to be talking about the mental health piece of this more because suicide kills. Absolutely. Dr. Andrea Bonnier, thank you so much. We'll have you on again soon. Finally, we want to take the time to honor one of the more than 144,000 American lives lost to coronavirus, 69 years old. Hortensia Lawrence lived in South Florida. That's her on the left at her grandson's wedding uh, in Fort Lauderdale. He told us his grandmother was a hard worker. She was very strong and independent. She worked as a caregiver. She immigrated to the U.S. from Venezuela in the early 2000s. She got to visit her family back in Venezuela a few months ago. She was diagnosed with coronavirus July 2nd. She died, died four days later. To the Lawrence family, our condolences. May her memory be a blessing. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. See you Sunday morning. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.